The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Father, protect us from having any other song and anthem but that one. Just thinking of the words that you are my one defense. Yet so often I like to lie to myself and think that I have other defenses. There's other things I've placed in my life that can protect me against this world or can protect me against the, um, the struggles of my flesh. And yet you are my only defense. You are our only defense. The only hope that we have Lord, protect us from looking at anything else. Father, as we open up your word this morning and we get to look at it, just be with us. As Victor prayed, be with your preacher to be with my mind and words. Also just pray for those who are at home or traveling today. You know, so many of them are on my mind. Um, just help them to have a moment of Sabbath rest today like, like we're able to have, where we center our minds on your word. Be with them if they're traveling, heal them if they are sick. Um, bring them back so we can worship with them again next week. Lord, just be with us now in your son's name, amen. Well, uh, prior to us jumping to the Gospel of John, I wanna give an update on our Sri Lanka offering. Uh, we were able to collect $12,000, roughly $12,000, $12,056. Uh, when I called and text Mark George about that, he was completely blown away. So the checks in the mail, uh, they will be getting it. And then um, the ministry in Sri Lanka that Mark George's dad runs will be figuring out the best way to um, delve that out over the next coming weeks and months. He, he wants to give us some updates uh, as they go about uh, who they're serving and how many people they're serving. So there uh, should be more updates coming, but first, thank you. I mean, $12,000 was huge. Um, when we w made the announcement the first week, me and Damien sat down and was like, what's it gonna be? And both him and I were like, I don't know. It's probably more than both of us think, and it totally was. So we set the goal of 5,000, and we totally blew that out of the water. So thank you so much for that. Okay, the Gospel of John. This morning, we're gonna have a, a little different sermon, and I'm going to attack the Gospel of John chapter seven. Um, in a little different fashion just for this sermon. We are, if you will, three-fourths of the way through Jesus's ministry. We're not three-fourths of the way through the Gospel of John, but we're three-fourths of the way through Jesus's ministry. And the reason that is, is because this Gospel, the Gospel of John, does not talk about Jesus's life in chronological order. We have those Gospels. That's the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, when John wrote this Gospel, he was not writing to describe the storyline of Jesus' ministry for those three and a half years, but rather he was writing to tell us about the man that we all need to know. So what I want to do this morning is somewhat remind us of the purpose of the book of John and also set up kind of this new section that we're heading into because John is writing to to uh, explain to us this man that 
totally changed his life and will totally change your life. This man by the name of Jesus. And he is writing for us and for his readers to know why Jesus is the ultimate savior and why Jesus is our only savior. So everything that he puts in this book is pointed towards that end. That's why he gives us this thesis statement in the back of the book. He says, I've written all of these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and the Savior and that he can save you from your sins. So what he has done in this book is he has jumped around to the various passages and stories and events so that he can build this foundation for us so that we can trust in Christ. And what's happened up to this point is he's kind of moved at a faster pace. He's gone to Jerusalem and then Galilee and then Jerusalem and then Galilee and then Judah and then Galilee and then he's, he's jumped around to all of these places. Well, between now and the end of the book, we only have four more stops, if you will, four more events. So he starts to take a slower pace when it comes to certain events, but give more detail. And the event that we are um, bearing down upon us now is the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was actually the largest of the feasts, or the, and by largest, the most well-attended of all of the feasts that took place throughout the year. This feast was in the, was in the fall, and it was celebrating that the harvest has come and is over, but it was also looking back and celebrating God's provision for Israel in the wilderness. This feast took place over seven days. It was in Jerusalem like all of the other feasts were, and there were two main events throughout this um, this week and this festival. The first event was a cer ceremonial water drawing. They would go down to a river and they would draw up water, and it was to remind the people, it was to picture God providing water for them in the wilderness, water from the rock. The second ceremonial event that took place during this feast was the lighting of a lamp or a candle. And we'll get to this as we get into this detail more or this story more. But when I say lighting of a candle or a lamp, I'm not meaning like click like a, a bedside lamp. It's more like the Olympic torch being lit at the games where it's this huge basin that erupts into flames. And that is to signify uh, Jesus's or God's provision through the wilderness with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of smoke. So this was a well-known feast. Again, this was the largest of all of these feasts. And this feast takes place and is going to take us from the beginning of chapter 7 all the way to the end of chapter 10. So that for the next several months that we are in this book, we are going to be dealing with this feast. So as we get to various details, we will unpack that. Now, the, the reason that uh, I, I've highlighted this and, I've, and I've, I've stopped this is because John is emphasizing the conversations that's going on here at this feast. And we can't miss what's happening here because there are several distinct arguments that are going on, but they all surround this one thing. Who gives Jesus the authority to tell us what he is telling us? Who gives Jesus the authority to save us from our sins? Why should we place our trust ultimately in him? So everything that we are going to be looking at with this feast is going to be surrounding that. Just to give you some um, 
insight of how we're going to be handling this. I'm only going to be dealing with the first 13 verses this morning, which is really just the introduction to all of this. We're going to be making our way as far into chapter 7 as we can, and then we're actually going to be stopping for the summer and doing a uh, different summer series. I know, summertime, there's a lot of travel, so people are in and out, and we want to save the Gospel of John and this story for uh, the spring and fall when we can all be here and participate in this discussion and conversation. So we have a special summer series of we're going to be looking at misunderstood passages or passages that we take out of context or items that, that, that we take out of context. That's going to be starting in June. So I don't exactly know how far into chapter 7 we're going to get before we, you know, take a break on this story and then move on to other things and we will pick it back up in the fall. Here's the thing we see about this feast and here's the thing that we can see about Jesus even as we have looked at his life. He made a big splash. He turned their world upside down. He was the topic of conversation. I mean, society just could not stop talking about him. But it was interesting because like most things that make a big splash, the place that was talked about the most, the people, the the way that Jesus was talked about the most was not kind of publicly but was privately. It was around dining room tables and in living rooms and on walks with friends. It was not necessarily broadcast over the news, though there was definitely those moments, but it was discussed between friends and families and coworkers. We're going to see that actually, that's how they started here. There was, Jesus' splash did not just hit the religious leaders of the day, it hit his own family. You see, as social creatures, we like to debate what's going on in life. We like to debate the preferences that we hold in our life. And many of these conversations are simply benign and non-threatening. I mean, we will talk about all the things that we love and hate at nauseum. But many of them, it doesn't matter which side of the coin you fall on. I mean, you could have your own clothing choices, and great, just make sure you're clothed. You could drive whatever car you want, great, just make sure that you show up on time. You can have all the diet fads that you want, just make sure that you eat enough food to sustain life. But when it comes to Christ, we don't treat Christ as something that's benign and non-threatening. We don't approach him in a, yeah, you can take it or leave it sort of manner. When it comes to Christ, he cuts deep. When it comes to Christ, you're either for him or against him. And if you're in the middle, if you're going, well, I like some of the stuff he says, but I don't like other of, of the things he says, you're still having a heated debate of whether you like Christ or whether you don't like Christ. We've seen this in the gospel thus far. We've seen people come to him and they come to, I mean, yes, there are, are, are some who approach him like Nicodemus who are like, okay, well, you know, let's have a reasonable conversation here. But the majority of people are antagonistic towards Christ. And we see this in Jesus's life, but we can also see this in our world today. That antagonism towards Christ has not stopped. In fact, I think it has gotten just even worse this week as the Roe vs. Wade discussions came on the scene, I, I just, I stopped and I didn't say anything publicly about it, but I, I just began to, to read and to observe the new debates that's going on or the fresh debates that, that are going on. And they're going on in the best of places, Facebook. And what was interesting was 
the way this whole discussion was being couched, and probably it's because I'm in Christian circles and I'm a pastor and I'm a Christian, but even with Roe versus Wade, Christ was attacked. Christ was criticized. Here are the kind of two criticisms that I, I saw on one side of the coin. People are criticizing us because our stupid Bible tells us that abortion is a sin. On the other side of the coin, people are criticizing the church for not caring for more orphans and children in the foster care system. But on both sides, the attack is against Christ. Because one says, if you really believe in Christ, you're just pretty stupid. The other says, if you really believe in Christ, you'd act different. And what's interesting is Christ always draws these distinctions and always draws this heated debate where it's, again, it's not benign or non-threatening. It is, it is, uh, it's either hot or cold. Everyone has an opinion. We see that in our text this morning. So, I want to read, we're not going to actually read all of this. I'll, we'll read through it as I um, kind of speak through it. But just observe where the criticisms take place in Jesus' life first. It says this in John 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. It had been about six, uh, the time period, we're unsure how long he had been in Capernaum, but it had been six months since the feeding of the 5,000. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews, Feast of Booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you are, do, are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Where we open up on John 7 is his brothers essentially saying, if you really say, if you really believe that you are who you say you are, you should go tell everyone about it. You should go show yourself. This was criticism to the core. His brothers knew there was a feast going on. His brothers knew that it was the largest feast in the calendar year. His brothers knew that the most people were going to be in Jerusalem right now. And so they stood back and they said, okay, Jesus, you're trying to make a splash. Go down to the feast. If you really say who you say you are, you should go and show everyone. I mean, here's how, we, how they word it. No one who works in secret for no one works in secret who seeks to be known openly. Jesus has been walking around saying, yes, I'm trying to tell people that I am the Messiah. I'm trying to tell people that I am the Lamb of God. I'm trying to have the world see me for who I truly am. And his brothers, his flesh and blood, half flesh and blood, half brothers, obviously. His brothers, people who knew him the closest, knew him the most, spent life with him, now are stepping back and mocking him. Jesus, if you say, if you believe that you actually are the Messiah, why don't you go down and make yourself known? Why don't you show the world? What's interesting is that when we approach Jesus, we so often approach him for personal gain. We so often want God and Jesus to work according to our time and according to our ways and not God's ways. This is put on full display in this scene because his brothers are essentially saying, now if I was the Messiah, Jesus, if I was running this whole show on how you're going to proclaim yourself to the world, I would be going down to this feast and I would be doing your miracles there. You know, they were essentially saying, now, okay, if you, 
if you are who you say you are, you should act in these particular manners. Or if you're the person and you have this power, well, you should perform just the way I want you to. They're totally criticizing Jesus because they don't believe in him. They're mocking Jesus because they only see him as a fool. They assume that they can push him around. I mean, they are classic brothers right now. I'm sure just trying to get under his skin and poking him. The antagonism against Jesus began from in his own household. I mean, there was no safe place for our Savior where the people actually saw it. It was truly Jesus against the world. Which gets me back to what I acknowledged at the beginning. The world carries a unique criticism for Jesus. Just imagine, the world doesn't go after Gandhi like it goes after Jesus. The world doesn't go after these New Age Enlightenment theorists like it goes after Jesus. The world has not spent nearly the amount of time criticizing the works of Plato and Aristotle and Darwin as it has the Bible. There is, there's no safe place when you claim the name of Christ. And we can see that this debate begins with his brothers because they were not believing yet. And it continues even into the broader context because what we're going to see in the coming chapters is that the, the whole debate that is surrounding this entire feast is who gave you the authority to tell us what to do and why should we trust you? This shouldn't come as a surprise to us though because consider how John started his gospel. What's been interesting is I've been studying for this morning and then even reading ahead for, for just this entire episode with the, the with the Feast of Booths. I've constantly been brought back to the prologue of this gospel, where, where we began. And I want to read that for us again this morning. Again, I'm just trying to um, remind us of where we have gone and where we are going. Here's what the prologue says. This is how John starts it. We can see that, you know, he declared it then and now he's kind of proving, proving to us why this is the case. Here's what it says. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Or the other way that we could translate that, recognized it. True light, which gives light to everyone, this is verse 9, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people, his own brothers did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The light shines in darkness and darkness has not recognized it we see this on full display with his brothers if you say if you believe if you say who you actually say you are you should go and show yourself openly to everyone look how jesus responds though you would think he'd be like you stupid people you don't understand who you're talking to no he has far more grace Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast. My time has not yet fully come. 
if the brothers were poking at Jesus, Jesus, sanctified in a sanctified manner, poked right back. My time's not come yet because that's not a safe place for me right now. But it's a safe place for you. Why? Because the world does not hate you. The world cannot hate you. Why can the world not hate you? Because the world can't hate its own kind. Jesus knows his brothers won't be hated because they're still in darkness. This distinction that we see at the beginning of John, and we're going to see even coming up in, in the coming sections of John, there's this distinction between light and darkness, those who follow Christ and those who don't follow Christ. And throughout Jesus' ministry and throughout John's gospel and throughout even Scripture itself, we see the subtle line building from Jesus that is preparing us to live within this distinction. Preparing us to live, understanding that the world is going to hate us because if you are in Christ, if you have that light, the darkness that surrounds all of us is going to try to put it out. We're going to see this more as we get in, into the upper room discourse where he is, tells his people, hey, I'm leaving, but oh, by the way, I'm not going to leave you alone. That's John 14 and 16 with the Holy Spirit. But the reality of the gospel is that if we are united with him, we are also going to be united to the, to the hostility he receives from the darkness. I know this is a unique sermon because I'm jumping around. Again, this is just to set up this whole scene. But I want to remind us of something this morning that we don't often talk about from this pulpit. But I think we... I think I need to this morning because I'm sensing in our world we need to be reminded of this. We are called to suffer for Christ. We are called to, to be lights to this dark world and we are called to stand against that darkness. Jesus throughout his ministry is pushing back against that darkness. He is standing against that darkness and we can see that darkness try to overwhelm it. It doesn't. Thinks it, thinks it does for a moment on Calvary, but actually, no, that, that's Jesus claiming victory over it. But as believers, we are called to stand against that darkness and to suffer for Christ because Christ suffered for us. And I want to go to 1 Peter 4 for a moment because when we think about suffering for Christ, we can think about it as a, as a punishment. Something that we as a chastisement against us. Peter speaks about it in different ways. Peter speaks about it as a gift. Peter speaks about us standing against darkness and suffering for Christ as, as a stewarding God's grace for this world. I'm going to read a couple of verses from chapter 4. It says this, Therefore, or rather, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourself in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time, for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The reason that Jesus' brothers are mocking Jesus is because they are still living for human passions. They are still living with their mind's eye being the primary objective. Rather, where Peter calls us to and what we can clearly see in Jesus' life is that we are called to live for the will of God. And look how Peter describes that at the end of chapter 4. He does not paint an easy picture for us. Beloved, 
do not be surprised, this is verse 12, at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, let no one think that we should then go around being championing the fact that we're suffering if we're being stupid because he continues, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that, in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it, if it begins with us, it will also be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter is very clear. He doesn't say you may suffer. He doesn't say you could suffer. He doesn't say you hopefully won't suffer. He says you will suffer. Again, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Here's a question for you this morning. We're called to stand out from this world. And in so doing, in standing out, we will then suffer because of it. But we're called to stand out from this world. The way to not suffer is to go with the flow. The way to not suffer is to never speak against the darkness. The way to not suffer is not to follow God's law and God's kingdom, but follow the world's law and the world's kingdom. So the question that I would just pose before you this morning, are you suffering for Christ? And the question behind the question is, are you living for Christ? Are you allowing his law to direct your life? Are you allowing his actions to tell you how to respond? Are you willing to stand up for him and for the truth and for God's law to say no? I'm not going that way. I'm not believing that thing. I'm not doing this action over here because it goes against God's law. Back to John 7. Jesus knows the struggle against flesh and blood. He knows the struggle against the darkness. He knows that what he is offering is life transforming and at the same time is threatening to the world's darkness. And he knows that we as his church, as his people get to proclaim that grace to the world. As we continue in this section of John 7, I, I just want to cover a few more verses before we close this morning just to, you know, get us into the feast. Because what Jesus has just said, it's not my time. I'm not going up to the feast. But I just said this whole scene takes place there in the feast. So how does Jesus get there? Well, it says this in verse 9. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, they also went up, he also went up publicly, or not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And 
they were muttering about them among the people, while some said, well, he is a good man, and others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. And about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. So did Jesus lie to his brothers? Did Jesus lie to us? He said he wasn't going to the feast, and then he went up to the feast. Did Jesus change his mind all of a sudden? He's like, actually, that is a good idea. I should go up there and openly speak about me. Why did Jesus say he wasn't going and now he, he is up there? Well, there's some thoughts on this. Jesus went up not to make a splash, not to have some public discourse. Jesus went up so that he could bring hope to the weary worshipers and sight to the spiritually blind. That's what we're going to see in all of this. And he uses some really cool pictures that I'm excited to jump into. But he was not going up to have a premature triumphal entry. That's why when it says he went up in the middle of the feast, he didn't go up on that first day when everyone's looking around going, where's Jesus? I got some questions for him. When's this guy going to come up? I want to see a miracle. I've heard about these things. Rather, he went up in the middle of the feast and quietly went in, into the temple and said, I'm here and began to teach. Now, we'll, we're going to look at that teaching next week, and, and it's, it's really funny, the accusations that people threw against Jesus. They, they all sounded the same, and basically it all came down to, well, maybe you just have a demon, because no one knew how to actually respond to him. Jesus is not going up on the public stage. He's going up to preach to the hearts of the weary pilgrims that are just looking for hope. As we close this morning, I want to go back to where I started. Talking about that Jesus inherently carries with him criticism. You're either for him or against him. And what we see even in this first part where, you know, the Jews are looking for him at the feast and they were saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him. Is he a good man? Is he leading people astray? But notice, for fear of the Jews, none of them spoke openly about him. Even then, the most important conversations that were being had about Jesus wasn't taking place on the public squares, wasn't taking place on the news, wasn't taking place on the Facebook posts. It was taking place around the kitchen tables with friends and families and coworkers going, what do you think about this guy? Here's why I bring that up this morning. I want to remind you that if you are in Christ, you have the opportunity and the privilege of being a herald of Christ's grace every single day. It's so easy for us to think that our Christian lives take place on Sunday mornings during a set period of time. And we, as, as elders, as pastors, work hard that every time we come in this room, every service that we have, that we celebrate Christ hard, that he is the focus of, of our attention. Because as we say, six days a week, the world is going to remind you about other things and is going to point you towards other gods and is going to give you all of these other idols that say, if you believe this, if you do this, if you follow this, your life will go well with you. And on this day of the week on Sunday, we come in and we know that we stand here as heralds, as pastors and elders, reminding you, those can't save. Christ can only save. But allow me to flip this now. Our opportunity as believers is to walk out of this room, 
not necessarily to a stage with a mic, with a preaching moment, but to a dining room table, to a walk with a friend, to a conversation with a coworker, and say, hey, can I tell you about Christ? Can I tell you about the love that he has given me that has transformed my life? Hey, I know you have some questions and I'm willing to have a conversation with those questions. I know you might, you might even have criticism and you know what? I'm willing to receive that. But can I tell you about the man that changed my life? That's where we started with this gospel. This is a simple man who had his world turned upside down. This is a guy that one day, he didn't see it coming. He saw Jesus walking down the road. And from that moment on, his life was fundamentally different. And is all he is doing is let me tell you about my friend Jesus because, as the tagline says, you need to meet him. As Jesus' disciples, we still have that same opportunity to take the message of the gospel and to take it into your world. I'm not in your world, but you are. I don't know your friends. I don't know your family. I don't know your coworkers. I don't know the people that you interact with. But what I do know, because you sit in this room, is that you are prepared to be a herald of God's amazing grace to those people in your life. As we end this morning and, and we turn towards communion, it's, it's where we end every week. And it's because it's the reminder that we need to have every single day, but every single week. We can feel so inadequate to be a herald for Christ because we're broken, because there's still darkness inside of us, because we're still in this body of death, because we're, we still struggle with sin, because we're still drawn off course. And yet, we take communion to remind us that the thing that we need the most, the, the, the hope that we're all looking for, has been given to us in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you are a believer, we encourage you to take this with us. This is a family meal. If you're here for the first time, maybe somebody brought you to church for the first time and, and you don't know, about the gospel, about faith, about grace. You, maybe this is the first time you've ever seen these elements. We would ask that you let the elements pass you by because we don't want them to confuse you. We don't take these elements to save ourselves. We don't take these elements to level up. We don't take these elements to, to spiritually fill ourselves back up because we are complete in Christ. We take them to remind ourselves that it's his life, death, burial, and resurrection that we trust in, not our own. Let's pray and we can take this together. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.